0: Welcome to this week of Burn It All Down. It may not be the feminist sports podcast you want, but it's the feminist sports podcast you need, especially this week. Our panel includes sports writer Jessica Luther, Professor Brenda Elsie, and the fantastic lawyer turned sports broadcaster and legal analyst, Adrian Lawrence, joining us as a guest host this week. Adrian, we're so glad that you're here.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited.
0: We're excited, too. Our topics this week include the ongoing Ezekiel Elliott saga in the NFL, how Charlottesville has ramped up national anthem protests in sports, and in evergreen topics, more weirdness from FIFA. And, of course, we'll have our burn pile and our badass woman of the week. So let's get right to our first topic, the tawdry display between the NFL Players Association and the NFL regarding the Ezekiel Elliott case. Jessica, want to take us through this one?
3: Sure. I I'm, I'm going to try at least. So this week, as expected, Cowboys running back Ezekiel Elliott, he appealed his 6-game suspension. He was suspended for violating the league's personal conduct policy because the NFL found that he had engaged in physical violence against his then-girlfriend across a series of days back in July of 2016. Todd Jones, the NFL senior vice president and special counsel, sent Elliot a six-page letter laying out the reasons they believed his ex-girlfriend over and above him. Those included, quote, the findings set forth above are based on a combination of photographic, medical, testimonial, and other evidence that is sufficiently credible in the commissioner's judgment to establish the facts, even allowing for concerns you and your representatives have advanced about the complaining witness's credibility. So those concerns include, we learned this week, inconsistencies in her account of what happened on one of those days. And there's evidence that she asked a friend to lie for her and against Elliot to the authorities Lisa Friel, the NFL's lead investigator, believed Elliot's accuser also misled the NFL during its investigation. As a result, she would not endorse the woman's credibility. There was also a September 2016 text message exchange between the woman and her friend in which she raised the idea of selling sex videos of herself and Elliot. When her friend suggested, quote, we could blackmail him with that, she responded, I want to, bro. The NFL's report also stated that the woman admitted registering an email address titled Ezekiel Elliott Sex Vids in August of 2016. As far as we know, nothing actually ever came of that, though. And all of this that we know is actually included in the league's 160-page report detailing the findings of the investigation. So that means the NFL knew it when they made their decision. Elliott's hearing on his appeal is going to take place at the end of the month on August 29th. A couple more things. So first... The prosecutor in Columbus, where his ex-girlfriend reported the violence, told USA Today last year, quote, for the Ezekiel Elliott matter, I personally believe that there were a series of interactions between Mr. Elliott and his accuser where violence occurred. However, given the totality of the circumstances, I could not firmly conclude exactly what happened. Saying something happened versus having sufficient evidence to criminally charge someone are two completely different things. And also, as Julie said there in throwing it to me, the NFL and the NFL Players Association, the NFLPA, got into a public spat this week on Twitter about the case. <laughs> the NFL charged that, quote, over the last few days, we've received multiple reports of the NFLPA spreading derogatory information to the media about the victim in the Ezekiel Elliott discipline case. The NFL then went on in their statement to actually say really accurate things about how victim shaming works in these cases But the NFLPA responded saying, quote, the public statement issued on behalf of every NFL owner is a lie. The NFLPA categorically denies the accusations made in the statement. So there's like so much to unpack here. The NFL really, I think, should stick to affirming their process in this case rather than trying to be a moral authority here. But I think, you know, it really comes out that these are really complicated cases and, you know, no victim is perfect. So what do you all make of what we now know in the LA case and like where this case is headed.
0: Well, here's my take on this whole thing. So I'm thinking back to the time when I was still an attorney and I was representing women who had been abused and, you know, I used to come home and say to my husband, and this is so terrible, but I would be like, you know, like, if she doesn't blah, 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 I'm going to beat her ass myself, because it, which is like a, such a horrible thing to say. But a lot of these women have horrible coping mechanisms, are socially stunted, which is sort of how they wound up in some of these relationships in the first place. So, I mean, you can be a terrible person, you can be an extortionist, you can be someone who's trying to blackmail someone and wants to release sex tapes and still have been a victim of abuse. And I feel like that's a really nuanced Sort of topic for the public to grasp. And so I was floored to see the NFL actually come out and on that side of it. I don't know what happens between Ezekiel Elliott and Tiffany Thompson. But, you know, like Jessica said, my understand my understanding is that she had not only pictures of her injuries, but the metadata of when those pictures were taken matched up with what she said happened. And there were also witnesses corroborating. So, you know, it's possible that you have two people who are not great in a relationship or maybe just generally not great people
2: together, but that doesn't mean that abuse didn't take place. Adrian. Yeah, and the the thing that I find to be, I guess, the most pivotal in this kind of case, especially because people love Ezekiel Elliott so much and he's showing so much promise in the league and also because it took the league so long to come out with its findings, is The fact that the NFL, they really do have to get this right because people have already questioned the process with how everything went down, you know, with Josh Brown getting the one game and yet, you know, other players getting more games, suspensions. And so this is just so important for the NFL to get right. So people don't doubt their system and their process. And so because as a result of that, they will doubt victims even more than they already do.
0: Yeah, Adrian, I think that's such an important point. And so from a legal standpoint, obviously, you know, we saw Adrian Peterson's suspension get knocked down because of the arbiter on the, the appeal saying that, you know, the NFL was not fair and that they were sort of arbitrary in their in their decision making. Given what happened in the Josh Brown case, aren't we kind of at risk of seeing the exact same thing happen here?
2: Well, the thing is, with Josh Brown, he was handed the whole one game off the bat, which is, you know... Something that still really just shake me since he admittedly in those court documents, he said he had a long history of abusing women. I think he even said that he had memories of when he was seven and would abuse women. And yet the NFL gave him one game. And so that's something that's extremely disconcerting. But then we have the situation here where the concern is that the NFL is going to try to make itself look better, kind of create an, an example. And so we could be in a position where they do reduce the games as kind of a a halfway point, given how much people love Ezekiel. But at the same time, they could hold steadfast to saying it's six games. We're not changing it to try to up the ante for their past failures. But it's one of those where they just need to start getting it right and getting it right consistently.
4: I just have a question for you guys. If you're representing a victim in this case with such a high profile case ahead of her, how do you advise someone who may have all of these issues? I mean, what do lawyers commonly say? Just don't go on social media at all. I mean, what what's the advice right now?
0: Wow, that's a good question. I don't know. I mean, I think that I would just, I would just tell her, you know, if you want to go ahead with this, I believe you and I believe this is what happened and I believe you're telling the truth, but this stuff is going to come back to haunt you and you're going to look bad. So just get ready for it. And I don't know that there's really much more you can do.
2: I agree. One thing I would probably tell her is to remain off of social media so she doesn't, although it's it's, because it's not like a standard court kind of process. So there's not necessarily something you can say that will be used against you since, especially this is an appeal and it'll probably be more limited. But it's one of those where she might have to change her name and move somewhere and go somewhere because the reality is, as we've seen, these fans are not so much the good people that we'd like them to be or sensical people. And so she could get death threats and be stalked for the rest of her life. And so it's one of those of you might just have to be ready no matter what the outcome is that some people are going to consider you to be the bad guy.
0: Yeah, and I feel like once your name is sort of in the public domain, you're in big trouble. Jessica, wanna wrap this up for us?
3: Yeah, the thing I keep coming back to with all of this is how much the NFL knew about all of this. Like that they understood all the credibility issues that she has and they still chose to suspend him for six games that they are steadfastly saying that there was enough evidence that they believe her over and above him, even though this is a difficult nuanced case where we don't have the perfect victim that we're often looking for and i just keep thinking about that whenever this comes up and people are arguing about it it's not like they're denying all of this about her they're really owning that part of it and i i don't know it's it's really wild to see this in action and that it is coming from the nfl of all places so it will be interesting to see what happens with the appeal once we get there
0: Jessica's thrown for a loop by the NFL doing the right thing for us when it comes to violence against women. <laughs> exactly. All right, let's move on to topic number two. We're just over a week removed from the events of Charlottesville. Feels like Colin Kaepernick's anthem protest is receiving new life. We've had... Boston Red Sox owner John Henry say that he wants to eliminate the name Yawkey Way outside Fenley Park, which reflects the name of an owner with the last name of Yawkey, who who apparently had many racist tendencies. Tampa Bay teams are wanting to help assist fund the removal of Confederate statutes outside confederate statues as a lawyer i always say statutes confederate statues outside the state house kevin durant says he won't go to the white house with donald trump there because he doesn't respect who's there right now we saw malcolm jenkins take a knee during the national anthem and chris long and justin Britt as allies we saw michael bennett call for white athletes to stand up as well to what's happening in this country. It feels like this has moved on from being just about police brutality and sort of the dual justice system in this country, which Colin Kaepernick was protesting. It's moved into something much bigger, which seems to be, you know, a protest against racism and isms across the board, and that this has just become more about equality. What do you guys think?
2: I do agree that this is more more about equality and that other players and other individuals are starting to see that. But it's interesting, too, in that same regard that several other players like Des Bryant, he said, I have a family to feed. That he's not not looking to, you know, push, move any needle forward in that issue in that arena and just want to stick to sports. And so it's one of those where it's not so much that people aren't recognizing that it's inequality, it's that they're unwilling to stick their neck out for it. And the good thing is we do have other players, white players who aren't necessarily impacted by the inequality, but they are stepping up and saying something. It's just, we also need more people because generally what is it that the majority is the one that has to acknowledge the oppression. And so it just seems extremely, I guess, interesting and to see where this is going to go and how it's going to move forward.
0: Yeah, I, I was I I love Michael Bennett. Just disclosure, full disclosure. I had the chance to meet him earlier this year. And he's like the first pro athlete I've ever heard talk about intersectionality, which was just crazy. But, you know, his call for white athletes to step up, I thought is really poignant. And, and frankly, as a white person, I'm embarrassed that more white athletes haven't done this already and that it's such a big deal that Chris Long did it. I, I mean, I Megan Rapinoe did it with the U.S. women's team, and that seems to sort of been forgotten. Everyone talks about Chris Long being the first white athlete to do it. But I'm sort of embarrassed and sort of dismayed that that no white athletes have really stepped up before now. Brenda? Yeah, it's so interesting.
4: I was at an event where Lillian Taram, the famous French soccer player, was speaking, who was a victim of tons of racial abuse during his career. And the question put to him is, what do you think is the biggest challenge and your biggest disappointment about the way racism has developed and continued and persisted in sports? And he said, it's that my white teammates don't stop play and don't stand up to support me. And he felt he felt as though that was really essential for his morale, not only to convince the public, which is really important but also to keep his, his spirit going and to not feel isolated on the team. The fact that Chris Long went to University of Virginia too seems to have a special resonance. So I don't want to like bend over backwards patting on the back white players that may not be as vulnerable and, and not focus on the African-American players that take all, a, a lot of the heat for this. But I do want to say that that it, that it seems to be really important to the players
0: of color to have those allies too. There were more white athletes, it seems, speaking out on Twitter, if not doing anything out in the public eye, like taking an eater in the anthem. Jessica, I know you brought up Steve Nash.
3: Yeah, I've been laughing about Steve Nash since Tuesday. So Tuesday was when President Trump, which I don't know if I've said those words in that combo out loud before, he did his press conference at Trump Tower, where he sort of, he literally walked back, his racism is evil, to do the violence on both sides you know all that that like i i don't even have the right adjectives for what that press conference was like and then at the very end the some reporter said something about his winery and he said this sort of bombastic statement about his largest winery in Charlottesville or in the nation. I don't remember. And Steve Nash, so the you know retired NBA player, he took to Twitter and he wrote, quote, to defend white supremacists and then slaying his shitty ass grape juice pretty much <laughs> sums, up, sums the man up. And I have been laughing about slaying his shitty ass grape juice since Tuesday. But yeah, we saw a lot of athletes take to social media in this moment and, and really speak out against, you know. Not just, you know, not necessarily for like the anthem protests or whatever, but directly against what the administration is doing and the way that they have responded to Charlottesville. You know, it seems like we have some sort of shift in how we're thinking about violent racism right now in this moment where... Charlottesville made it really blatant in a way that we hadn't seen before. And I think we we do have a shift in the anthem protests and the way that we're talking about them. It's a lot harder to say that Colin Kaepernick was wrong. Now people are going to do it. I don't doubt that at all, but it's harder now. Yeah, I was
0: hosting here in Chicago last night and it was crazy. The, I mean, every time you mentioned Colin Kaepernick, the phone lines just light up and the text line lights up. And the text line, if you guys don't know, is comprised of the worst people in the world. <laughs> so like their <laughs> comments on Colin Kaepernick were just horrible. And I don't know what it is about the national anthem that gets these people so riled up. It's just the fact that he didn't, quote unquote, respect the national anthem that drives them absolutely up the wall. But I guess the question that I have is, when does this protest sort of expand beyond sports? And when does it become something that more people are taking a part in? So I'm going to Wrigley Field today to go to a Cubs game. Do I sit for the anthem? Do I, You know, I mean, I don't know. I've thought about it. I think I'll get positively killed and probably have to be escorted out by security, especially with the Blue Angels flying overhead for the air show this weekend. But I mean, at what point does this go, you know, further and encompass more people than just those involved in professional sports?
2: I think that's a really good question. Yesterday, the NYPD, they had a group of officers come together to support Colin Kaepernick, and they did a press conference and included Frank Serpico, you know, from the film Serpico. Yeah. And it it was... Yeah. And it was pretty powerful to see that they had all come together and they said, we are acknowledging we have these problems with, even within the NYPD. And the thing is, it's, it's the acknowledgement that people are afraid to do. That's why these callers and these people get so incensed because they don't want to check themselves because if they had to, the reality is that they have their own biases. We all have biases. It's, it's the extent to which that impacts how you engage with people. And so- it's one of those things where people don't want to hear it and they are not going to and they will refuse to and they'll find every reason and way and which why they focus, focus on the anthem so hard because they don't want to have to look within themselves and see something that they don't want to see. And it's a, it's a complete shoulder shrug because if we can't get them to listen, I feel like it is outside of sports already. It's just a, a matter that you need the acknowledgement that racism comes in all forms, all fashion... And there are things that all lie within ourselves. That's a really great
0: way to say it, Adrian. And, you know, I, I was thinking I had a caller last night sort of confront me and say, you know, well, if you're thinking of sitting for the anthem, you know, you're white and you're rich and you live in the suburbs and what do you have to protest? And 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 I thought, you know, back to my time as a public defender and how appalled I was on a daily basis by the difference in the two justice systems in this country, yes. the way that my black young men clients were treated as opposed to middle-aged white women from the suburbs, sometimes for the exact same crimes. Mm-hmm. And so, I, you know, I started thinking about that and, and whether or not, you know, what what I do now at this point in my life to speak out and to sort of support Colin Kaepernick, I think that's kind of, you know, where we are is that we all sort of need to ask ourselves where we go from here. Jessica?
3: Yeah, I keep thinking about this meme that I saw about it's a picture of the torch, tiki torch wielding white supremacist from the Friday night in Charlottesville. And there's two images of them and on the top. It says, this is what you see. And it's like racist, bigot, you know, white supremacist. And then the second below, it says, this is what I see. And it's like bank teller, police officer, neighbor, and just sort of the way that we need to restructure how we imagine the way racism works in this country, right? And that's one of the things about Charlottesville is that we people started to name these guys and say, like, he works at a hot dog stand, like he goes to this university. He's the leader of the college Republicans on campus, you know, like, these are guys that you see all the time, they're around you in your life, and sort of rewiring how we're thinking about this is one of the very powerful things that that came out of Charlottesville, I think, and. Yeah, it really goes to why white people need to be stepping up and and saying this stuff like it's not it's not just this fringe group of people. It's all the people around you, too.
0: Yeah, and I think one of the saddest things about this whole episode for me is, and I'm sure for a lot of other white people, is to realize, as I know that that our black friends have known this for a long time, how many of our friends and the people in our daily lives, like Jessica said, bank tellers and neighbors and you know police officers, have such a lack of understanding of racial dynamics in this country. Not that I think as a white person that I've got a complete grasp on it. But, you know, just looking at the reactions I posted on Facebook about Tina Fey's bit and how much I didn't like the sheet, the sheet cake eating thing. And it got such like defensive reactions from people who I've never seen weighed into politics for any other reason to come out to defend Tina Fey and say it's absolutely not. It absolutely wasn't privileged or racist when so many people of color have said this bothered me for this reason. That was really depressing to me this weekend. Brenda?
4: Yeah, I just something about the way in which people define what's political and what's nationalist is, is sort of at the heart, too, of the way in which people who are protesting get cast as political rather than moral. And it, it happens again mm-hmm. and again, because think about the fact that the U.S. government paid for military presence at NFL halftimes. Like, we know that what's not political about that but somehow these protesters get painted as be, or even those of us who want to be allies to the protesters or are protesting ourselves are painted as being political and not moral and people who just love the anthem and stand up and wave you know a flag are somehow being moral and unifying rather than divisive so i also think in our daily life too it's it's like important to point out to people that it's really patriotic to protest, that these athletes are are actually trying to make the country a better place, and that what's not patriotic is just, you know, sitting back and reciting some anthem or, or waving some flag instead of actively engaging with what it means to be, you know, a US citizen. So I just like to say it's already political, it's politicized by the government, and it's just really unfair to me that people that have a different vision, a more equal vision of this country an anti-racist vision are constantly portrayed as somehow politicizing an issue that's, I don't know what, not a political issue when the government pays for those kinds of shows. That's politics.
0: Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think that's a a great point to make, Brenda, especially last night. So many of the callers, there were so many veterans of all colors, creed, religion calling in to say, I support his right to do this. That is why I fought. And it's the guys who didn't fight who are the ones screaming about Kaepernick disrespecting the military. So I thought that was really interesting. Let's move on to topic number three. It's evergreen for us here at Burn It All Down. It is weirdness from FIFA. And this week, the nominations for the men's and women's player of the year are out. And they are different. Brenda? Yeah. So this week, as you said, Julie,
4: FIFA came out with a short list of the best soccer players in the world, both men's and women's. Things are a little unequal in terms of how many people get shortlisted. Women get 10, men 24. And that's a little frustrating because it's a way for women to get recognized in a way that they usually aren't. So it's, it's, it would be nice if FIFA, FIFA made that a little bit more equal. The FIFA awards are interesting in that they're both the club performances of players and their national team performances. It also makes it tricky because the number of times that the national team plays, a player can't necessarily control, right? So in that sense, it's it's pretty cool. But it's also a weird award because every year it depends on how well those national teams or how the confederation set your schedule. On the men's side, not many surprises, really. I would expect to say Cristiano Ronaldo's going to win again. He's leading in terms of the voting of the shortlist, basically the confederations cup he was amazing again winning the champions league with real madrid i can't imagine him not winning it makes me sad because i'm not all on team cristiano which is composed mostly of statues of himself that he's commissioned (laughs) but i but i have to say i'd be i'd be floored if he doesn't win the messiah of football Leo Messi served a very strange suspension this year and bowed out early at the Confederations Cup. So I doubt that we'll see him. I guess FIFA could go for someone else, but that would literally be a ploy. I I don't think that'll happen. If if it does, people will just, you know, it'll be just social media will explode and we won't have Internet anymore. On the women's side, things got super weird. And it reflects, because it reflects for people the lack of engagement with a women's game. When they're off, it just, and we talk about this on the show, right? That women's sports can never just be women's sports. And so the fact that the nominations are are strange and have some weird inclusions and exclusions are very frustrating for fans of, of the sport. Basically, the biggest surprise is Carly Lloyd being on the list. And I know for a lot of US fans are like, what? Carly Lloyd's awesome. And she is. But this hasn't been the kind of year that feels like a world's best year. The national team is pretty underperforming. Man City is good, but best in the world, not so much. In that sense, I expect Sam Crow of Australia to win. I mean, even in terms of sportsmanship, Carly Lloyd elbowed a player in the head. Served a three-game suspension this year, so not not even sort of in the sportsmanship category <laughs> would she win. So I don't know, but you know what? It's super cool because it generates all this kind of debate and highlights and stuff like that. So I don't know. That's 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 my sort of take on the FIFA list so far. Is there anybody you guys thought should be included or excluded?
0: Well, Brenda, here's my question for you. I mean, you you are much more versed on the international players than I am. I tend to watch the U.S. women play, and and I don't watch much more than that, which I really need to be better about doing. But one of the questions I had for you was, you know, when FIFA includes women that, that maybe you think shouldn't be there, I don't know if it's to sort of try to drum up interest from American fans or if they just don't pay all that much attention to women's football, and so they just sort of throw the same people out there year after year.
4: Yeah, I, that's exactly precisely what drives people crazy about this is that they feel as though the U.S. is this market, both things, that the U.S. is this market that they have to try to constantly attract and pay homage to that somehow, you know, if, if a U.S. player isn't on there, it's going to drive down. But if you were really engaged, I mean, you would think the club play of Megan Rapinoe would be enough. Right to put her there, or maybe even Kristen Press. So it feels to people like both things—both a kind of weird inclusion. It must have a U.S. player on there, and also just hey, not paying attention to what's going on in the NWSL.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I guess it's FIFA. So you know, at the end of the day, it's sort of. Uh, and, and I can say this. I mean, there are not like people in the U.S. And I know you know this too, Brenda. It's not there's not people here like jumping up and down and being really excited because Carly Lloyd's nominated for FIFA Woman of the Year. It's just not a, a thing that's on anyone's radar. I don't think.
3: <laughs> I feel like if Shireen was here, she would probably bring up Nadia Nadim, who I don't I don't know enough about this Brenda <laughs> to say like whether or not she deserves to be there. <laughs> but like we ta- Shireen talks about her all the time, and I know that the, the her team just won the Euros, right? So why do you think? I mean, well, her team didn't win. The 10- they were 24- twenty finalists.
4: It's, oh, it's they were Denmark. Finalists. See, it's Denmark, and you're so right. She would she would really be mad if we
3: don't say that name. Okay, good. I feel I feel like see, Shireen has taught me things. I mean, this ten candidates for women versus twenty-four for men is just the implicit thing here is that there aren't twenty four (laughs) women. Like that they couldn't come up with twenty-four women to make this list, which is a weird thing to suggest especially because we did just have this huge tournament in Europe because there is so much club play happening this idea that they couldn't have found 24 to, to make a list out of is just such a weird and also predictable thing from FIFA and is so it just makes clear sort of how they treat the women's game as this auxiliary less than version of what the men are doing completely
4: absolutely I mean because where do you come up with 10 why 10 I mean, at least 11 would have some symbolism, you know, it's just 10 (laughs) is just like, I don't know. It's like four guys sitting around a room that are like, can you think of 10?
0: I I don't know. I can think of nine. I mean, what?
3: Yeah, (laughs) And add Carly, don't forget Carly. Carly. Yeah.
0: I'm just, I'm just picturing these old like bloated FIFA officials, like, you know, just sitting around trying to come up with women for this. And it just cracks me up.
4: Once again, it's just a reflection to say who puts resources where. I mean, the South American Confederation, there is one South American on there who's in the NWSL, Dana Cavallos, but they don't schedule games. Actually, eight out of the 10 like national federations were out of FIFA rankings, Chile, Argentina, because they turned down invitations or didn't send the women to play. So they don't even get featured. So there's a huge inequality too about regions in the global south here being represented. So that ten thing it, it really is, it's a it's it's more than just a number. It's it is about being frustrated.
0: All right, now it's time for everyone's favorite segment of the week where we take things we've hated and throw them onto the burn pile. I'll start this week. I'm gonna take Radio Shock Jock Dino Costa getting fired yet again for acting like a complete asshat on the radio. This guy, if you don't know who Dino Costa is, he's been fired by just about every major market in the country. He's a sports talk guy. He was on the radio, I think it was either in Cleveland or Detroit, talking about how women don't know anything about sports and shouldn't be on the radio. And and he tends to like try to get his audience by saying really outrageous things. He was out in Seattle, I believe, and he made some comments about people should learn how to drive over protesters so that they can do this at protests all over the country. And he got fired for it again. And at this point, you know, him having a job for like six months and then getting fired is pretty much par for the course. But what really is upsetting to me is the fact that this guy keeps getting jobs while there are so many qualified women in radio who don't get a chance at these big, prime hour, prime market slots. And it's just one of those things that is so frustrating to see over and over again. There seems to be this idea in radio broadcasting that, you know, like the frat bro is really like what people want to listen to. And and I'm sure Adrian can commiserate with this and that it's just so frustrating. Jessica, want to go next?
3: Sure. So mine is less a burning anger this week than just like an overall disappointment with what's happening in men's tennis going into the hardcourt season. Everyone's injured, at least the old men are. So we talked back in episode 11 about all the injuries that the men had during Wimbledon. There was a ridiculously high number of retirements in that tournament. And now we see Novak Djokovic. He's pulled out for the rest of the season. Stan Rawinka has a knee injury that has him out for the rest of the season. Kei Shakori tore his a tendon in his wrist. And Roger Federer has recently pulled out of two events because of a back injury. It does look like Andy Murray's going to play in the U.S. Open, but he's even coming off of a hip injury. So what we have now is like Rafael Nadal. He's number one. He's the last of this older great generation of men who's standing at this point. And perhaps this means we're going to get away of younger men stepping forward and being great this hardcourt season and that'll be its own exciting storyline but i'm bummed i'm bummed that we're going to miss out on djokovic nishikori and Rinka and that federer and murray will be coming off of injury if they actually do make it to new york so this week i'm going to throw all the old men's injuries into the burn pile and i'm hoping for swift recoveries
2: burn, burn, it. burn
0: it burn it adrian have you got one this week
2: Yes, this week. All right. So earlier this week, the NFL released the statement, you know, as we've discussed earlier in terms of condemning the NFLPA for victim shaming and starting a lot of the conversations to go against Ezekiel Elliott's alleged victim here. And the NFLPA responded at some point with emojis saying, where are the receipts? We'll wait. <laughs> throwing in emojis. And the thing is, it's like it was such a monumental thing for the NFL to acknowledge victim shaming, for the NFLPA to reduce it to emojis in a response that they ended up deleting. It's one of those where I'm like, really, guys, you're absolutely tone deaf because this is clearly about a petty dispute between the two of you that has nothing to do to acknowledge the plight of women that has become a problem with the league and its treatment of women Altogether, so it's one of those where I'm like, you know what NFLPA, I love what you all do for the players, but really, you need to step up in terms of what you're doing for society because you need to keep those emojis and stop making thinking you're so cute in a situation that is more serious than you are making it.
0: Our our our
2: emojis.
4: All right, Brenda, you're wrapping it up this week. okay, this week, The Guardian. The British newspaper caught on to a strange expense that the British Football Association paid an £80,000 expense to player Enia Luco, who is one of the big stars in women's football in England. And it turns out that she had complained about a, quote, culture of bullying and harassment, particularly targeting women of color on the English national team. And it goes back to comments of coach Mark Sampson to many of the players asking them about how many times they had been arrested, how much time they had served in jail, and all types of racialized comments that he had made to players. Aluko then was not chosen or opted out, we're not really sure, to play in the Euros that we were just talking about. And so instead, she worked in commentary. And all of this seems to suggest that this eighty thousand pound expense was hush money for Aluko to not quote unquote cause problems. So I'd like to burn oh. this culture of bullying and harassment that I have no doubt exists in the FA if Aluko says it does. She's she's a stellar human being. She's an amazing player, and there's no way she would sit out any major tournament unless she was telling the truth. So burn it. Oh, burn, burn it. Money. That's trash, yeah. Brenda. Yeah, it's burn big that trash. trash. Big big trash.
0: All right. Well, after all that burning, it's time to celebrate some amazing women in sports this week. Our badass woman of the week comes to us courtesy of Adrian Lawrence, who points out that Amanda Hopkins is breaking barriers as the first female baseball scout in more than 50 years. She's working for the Seattle Mariners. Baseball is an incredibly male-dominated industry, and so for her to even have gotten as far as she's gotten to this point is pretty remarkable. And I have no doubt that she will consider to do or she will continue to do great things going forward. I have an honorable mention for Tiana Bartoletta, who won bronze and long jump at the world championships, despite being homeless for three months after she says she escaped an abusive marriage. She posted on Instagram quote, just three short months ago, I had to run away from my own home. I had to decide which of all my belongings were the most important. I had to leave my dogs. I had little money. I still have no actual address. All to give myself a chance at having a life and the love I deserved, one that didn't involve fear of fighting, threats, and abuse. She also said that her bronze medal was the most important medal she'd ever won, especially considering that she's won gold twice before. So that was a pretty remarkable story. And also, Brenda points out that for the first time, FIFA has appointed female referees to officiate men's games in the U-17 World Cup in India. Seven women from the six confederations our support referees. That is a huge step for FIFA. So collectively, they are all badass women. All right, let's move on to what's good this week, where we talk about some things that we're looking forward to try to end the week on a positive note. Jessica, I want to start.
3: Yeah, I'd love to. So what's good in my world this week? I'm in deep escapism mode at this point. And so anyone who knows me at all knows that I love romance novels. And I recently read Alicia Rye's Hate to Want You, and I just want to recommend that to anybody. It's like it's great romance fiction that's perfect escapism. I can't recommend it highly enough. It's tight, smart writing. It's a Romeo and Juliet-themed narrative. But because it's a romance novel, you know it's a guaranteed happy ending. and who right now couldn't use a happy ending. So that's what's good in my world.
0: So true. Brenda? What's good
4: in my world this week is something I know so little about, which is the Women's Rugby World Cup. The finals take place August 26th. And I know on our Facebook page for Burning It All Down, we posted some highlights. And I know so little, but watching it and being such a soccer person, I was like, Oh my god, this is thrilling! They're using their hands too, and I—I <laughs> I know it's basic, but I was like, "Holy Toledo!" Like this is moving. So I was really excited. So I'm gonna watch the final. I'm not sure who's in it yet because we're still in the semis. But that's what I'm doing. It's August 26th, and I'm pretty psyched.
0: That sounds awesome, Adrian. What about you?
2: So, super excited because I'm going to hit the theaters again is the movie Girls Trip. Yes. It broke the $100 million mark in the box office. Wow. I've already seen it once. It's a journey of four black women going to New Orleans, just living their best life. And it's such a huge monumental thing for the black female culture in part because there aren't a lot of films that are focused or dedicated solely on us living our lives outside of being a slave or a whore or something that is not not—it's not a representation of the individuals that we are in our daily lives. And so having this hit $100 million and far exceeding its initial budget and how much it costs to make it, it's just one of those things that speaks to the world clamoring for more information about our lives. And so I lift it up. I'm excited. I love that it's still in theaters and I can't wait to see it again this week.
0: Yeah, I know. We all love it, too. As for me, this has been a rough week from Charlottesville going forward, even though obviously I'm not there. And obviously I wasn't one of the people targeted by Nazis like some of our other friends were. But fighting with people on Facebook, trying to have hard conversations with the other white people in your life obviously is is something that can get pretty dicey and can be kind of draining So I am going to Wrigley Field today. It's my son's birthday. I'm going to go sit in the sun and watch baseball. It is the closest thing I have to going to church. And so for all you sports fans out there who need to get away and have a little bit of escapism for a couple hours this week, I think heading to the ballpark, sitting in the sun in the fresh air and eating a hot dog and watching baseball is a great way to go. I highly recommend it. Is it for this week's episode of Burn It All Down. Burn It All Down lives on SoundCloud, but can also be heard on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Google Play. We always appreciate your reviews and feedback, so feel free to subscribe, rate, and tell us what you like or didn't like about the show. We hope you follow us on Twitter at Burn It Down Pod and on Facebook at Burn It All Down. You can also reach us via our website at burnitalldownpod.com. That's where you'll find all our show notes and links to all the topics we discuss And of course, you can email us at burnitalldownpod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from our listeners. And please take some time to check out our GoFundMe page and consider making a small donation to help keep the podcast going and allow us to make technical improvements. We're really grateful to everyone who has contributed so far. So for this week and for Jessica Luther, Brenda Elsie, and Adrian Lawrence, I'm Julie DeCaro, and we'll see you next week.